The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the eighth chapter. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forth to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is the Gospel of the Lord. One of the recurring oddities in the Gospels is that the people with whom Jesus should have the greatest affinity and the greatest level of agreement are also the people who are often giving him the most trouble. There were many, various, many and various sects in Judaism at the time of Jesus, way more than the scant few that we hear about in the New Testament. And yet, by and large, Jesus doesn't seem to care to interact with them. We don't hear much about them. We don't hear much about their involvement. The groups that rise to the top are, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And amongst these two, the Pharisees are the group that, by and large, actually should agree with Jesus on most things. And yet we find them regularly being his greatest enemies. I dare say that throughout the scriptures, you could almost plot a scientific law about this. That the more one has in common with Jesus, the more one should agree with Jesus, the more he will not agree with Jesus. The less he will want to do with Christ and his gospel. Time and time again, we see it. You remember from the Christmas reading the words of St. John that he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. 
In fact, this really shouldn't be so surprising. For even in human affairs, no matter how much affinity we may share with one another, the fact is that when we hear a message that we do not like, we don't exactly care who is giving it to us. In fact, oftentimes, it is all the more angering to hear a message that we do not want from someone who we believe should be on our side, someone who should toe the line as we toe it, someone who ought to agree with us on these matters, but who instead is telling us exactly the thing that we don't want to hear. And this is precisely the situation that the people of Israel were in when they heard the message of Jesus. The people of Israel wanted to believe that they were doing everything right, that they were obeying the covenant that they had made with the Lord at Sinai, that they were following the laws and prescriptions that they had received from Moses, that they were obeying the tradition of the elders exactly as they should have, that they were being faithful to their calling, and therefore God would deliver them from bondage, that he would cast off the yoke of the Romans, that he would restore Israel to freedom and spirit and peace and safety and all the things that they seem to lack in the current Roman oppression. But then this Jesus fellow shows up and he tells them that you have it all wrong. You think you're doing everything right. You think that you're doing what you ought. You think that you are sons of the kingdom, destined for the Father's glory, but you are not. You are sinners. You are wicked. You are idolaters. The reason you are all these things is because you do not believe in me. It doesn't matter how many jots and tittles of the law you're making sure to follow. It does not matter how scrupulously you are following the laws of Moses. It does not matter that you offer the prescribed sacrifices. It does not matter that you tithe your dill and your mint and your cumin. If you have no faith in me, it is all for nothing. And indeed, Perhaps the most insulting thing that Jesus ever could have said were these words. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. That is to say, these Gentiles, these sinners, these people whom you believe to have nothing in common with the kingdom, these people whom you would shut at the very gates and lock them out of the Father's kingdom, they will enter. They will sit beside your faithful fathers while it is you who will go without. All this because you do not believe 
in me. This is a horribly insulting thing for Jesus to have said to them. Scandalous in their minds. It's scandalous today, too. Oftentimes, when the world hears what we believe, that salvation comes through Christ alone, it is met with anger. It is met with, met with rage. It is met with accusations of injustice on God's part. How could God let these people in, these people who have done such terrible and awful things simply because they believe in him, while all the rest who do the right things, who are helpful to others, who are good by any imaginable measure that we can put before him, and you say that they shall not enter the kingdom of heaven because they don't believe in Jesus? in spite of the fact that they live objectively better than you most of the time, you would shut the door in their face, all because they don't believe in this one man whom they've never even met. How insulting. How angering. How true, unfortunately. It doesn't matter how angry we are about it. It doesn't matter if we think we live up to the goal. What matters is what God has said. What matters is what God has said is necessary to be in his kingdom. What matters is the standard that he himself has set. And that standard is perfection. It is not good, certainly not good enough. It is, too, at every single point in our lives, from the very first quickening which we experienced in the wombs of our mothers to the very last breath that we have to give in this life, a life that is wholly given to the Lord, one that is received as a gift from him, one that is given in thanks back to the Lord at its conclusion. It is a life where at every single point and every day, every minute, every single portion of it is wholly lived to the Lord and wholly lived according to his good and perfect will. And none of us, not even the best of us, can claim that. In the end, what we are saying is simply this. No one has the right to the kingdom of God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of that glory. All of us have a multitude of sins that would bar us from that kingdom. What matters then is not the balance of our sins, but that they are forgiven. 10,000 forgiven sins is better than one that is unforgiven. And that's a calculus that anyone can understand. To be in the kingdom of God is not a matter of our works. It is not a matter of what we can put forth in order to pay off the guard and get in. 
It's not a matter of giving our dues at the gate so that we might attain to what is inside. Rather, it is a gift to be received by faith. And of all of the examples of faith that we find in the scriptures, there is perhaps none more profound than the simple faith of the centurion who we see today. If we compare him with his typological forerunner, Naaman, we can see that there is a very different expectation between the two. Naaman expects Elisha to come out. He expects a grand performance to be done on his behalf. He expects something dramatic to happen. So when all that comes to him is simply a word, a promise, a simple task to go into the Jordan, dip seven times, and be healed, his heart rebels. Thankfully, there were people in there who could appeal to that basis desire. You've come all this way. Why not? Why return all the way to Damascus? Why return to the Abana and the Farpar? The Jordan is right here. What have you to lose? And Naaman did receive what was promised to him, even if he had to be dragged kicking and screaming to it. Still a better way is shown to us by the centurion. Even though Jesus offers to come, even though Jesus offers to be there for the dramatic miracle that really anybody would want to see in such an occasion, the centurion says, I am not worthy of this. It is not necessary that I see this marvel. Lord, I believe that you can heal my servant with just a word. Speak only the word and it will be sufficient for me and for him. I dare say I have never seen such a profound faith in my life. I dare say I've never seen such a faith in myself. To truly believe with all my heart that the word of God is truly sufficient. To believe that even if it is not flashy and dazzling and impressive to the eyes, that there is power merely in the word which God has spoken. I know I say I believe that. I know on paper I confess to believe that. I'm sure all of us profess we believe that. But there is still that part of us that really wants the miracle that really wants the flash and the dazzle and all of the pageantry that we would expect. And we think that somehow if we had that, then we would be satisfied. But really, from Jesus' own blessing that he gives to the faith of this centurion, we learn that the word truly is enough. 
Yes, maybe it would on some level satisfy us if, when I spoke the words of consecration, a lightning bolt from heaven came down to shock the cup and shock the bread, and they glowed with the majesty of God, maybe it would be tantalizing to us. But it is not necessary. For we know that the same word of God that healed the leper before this centurion, the same word of God that healed Naaman there in the Jordan, the same word that healed the centurion's servant is the word that has healed and saved us. And it is the word that accomplishes everything that the Lord promises. It may not be the flash and dazzle that we want but it is still filled with the power that we need. And it is that same word of God, that same life-giving word from the very mouth of Jesus that has put the faith of this centurion into your heart as well. That faith that lays hold to all the promises that the Lord has given to you. The promise that Though your sins be 10,000, or even 10,000 times 10,000, that every last one of them is forgiven, that all of them have been set aside, that there is nothing for which the gates of heaven need to be shut in your face, but that you have been made clear and perfect and without blemish in the sight of God that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have a place for you at their table. That whether you come from east or from west, there is a spot laid up for you at that greatest table which our Lord himself has set for his own guests. And that by faith, all of these things are yours today. That indeed, at that very table, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob recline. That when you come to that table, to this altar, that you receive the feast of heaven that is prepared for those who love the Lord. And even if the bread doesn't glow, even if the wine doesn't crackle with the majesty of God, that therein the body and blood of Christ is truly given and sin is truly forgiven. And for our faith, that is enough. For our faith, that word is enough to hold on to, enough to believe in, enough to have that assurity that when we go to this table, the healing we seek is given. That we do not need the dramatic, that we do not need the spectacle. For we have the power and the glory that is at the heart of this. That is sufficient for today, and it will be sufficient for tomorrow and for all the days of this earthly pilgrimage, until at last we will see the flash. We will see the glory. We will see the spectacle. We will see the dazzling brilliance of Christ in his own kingdom as he comes to liberate us from our graves and to give us life everlasting, free at last from all sin and corruption. 
And even then, when all of that is before us, we will still be able to say, even just your word was enough for me, my Lord. Amen. In the name of Jesus, our only hope in this life and the next. Amen.